And that's what Martin Luther felt. He came to hate the Bible. He came to hate one particular phrase in the Bible, the righteousness of God. Because he thought that all God was about was about watching your actions, creating this list of do's and don'ts, and if you failed, he would punish you. And so what haunted Martin Luther was the idea that God was always out to get him, and he could never live up to God's holy standard. All that changed one day. Martin Luther went from on his way to being a lawyer, to becoming a monk, and then he became a professor. And as he was preparing a lecture on the book of Romans, everything changed for him. He read Romans chapter 1, verse 17, For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith, as it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. Now first, got to understand some context. The big church in Europe at the time was the Roman Catholic Church. And what was happening in the Roman Catholic Church is that they were selling indulgences. In other words, they were selling forgiveness. One uh, phrase that, that, that described it says, once a coin into the coffer clings, a soul from purgatory heavenward springs. So it was in this context of selling, literally selling forgiveness in the Catholic Church that Martin Luther came upon this truth that righteousness is not earned. Righteousness is given by grace as a gift. And then he said this. When he realized this, he said, this immediately made me feel as though I had been born again and as though I had entered through open gates into paradise itself. From that moment, I saw the whole face of Scripture in a new light. That was 1517. He, 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 he took this new truth that he discovered, and he wrote 95 theses, 95 resolutions, and he nailed them to a church door in Wittenberg. And that action of nailing that, those theses to the door was an invitation to a debate. It was an invitation to a disputation. It was an invitation to, to stand on the word of God and go toe-to-toe -to -toe with people who interpreted it differently. And he was out to prove that righteousness is by faith through grace by God alone. And that is the public launch of what we now know as the Protestant Reformation. The Reformation was massive. It, it, it created this thing called Protestants, which here we are in 2019. We are part of that same branch in theology of Protestantism that branched off from Catholicism into many different branches, from Presbyterianism to Lutheranism after Martin Luther to Baptists. And in many ways, we would not be here today without that revolution in Scripture from the Protestant Reformation. Now, I'm going somewhere with this. I tell that story of Martin Luther because just as we needed a Protestant Reformation in the 16th century, we need a racial Reformation in the 21st century. In order 
to root out the racism that has infected so many parts of the church in America, we need a movement just as monumental, just as revolutionary as was the Protestant Reformation in the 16th century. Today, church, I mean, I want you to know what you're up against. I want you to know what the next phase is. See, I speak in some places where they, 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 don't even, they don't even recognize the racial issues in the nation or the congregation. They don't think about or, or speak about issues of justice. But that's not this church. I know that. I know that you all are intentionally reaching out across racial and ethnic lines. I know that you are being part of the community. I know that your hearts are heavy for justice. But I want you to know that there is work still to do. A revolutionary work, a reformational work. So here's, here's what's going to happen today. I want to talk about at least three requirements if we are to see a racial reformation today. Three requirements. One, a racial reformation requires reminding. A racial reformation requires a reckoning. And a racial reformation requires, of course, reforming. A reminding, a reckoning, and a reforming. Our foundational text for this morning is Genesis chapter 1, verses 26 and 27. I'm sure you're familiar with it. Genesis chapter 1, verses 26 and 27. If you are able, please stand for the re reading of God's word. Genesis 1, 26 and 27 reads, Then God said, Let us make mankind in our image, in our likeness, so that they may rule over the fish of the sea and the birds in the sky, over the livestock and all the wild animals, and over all the creatures that move along the ground. So God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. Thus ends the reading of God's word. May he bless it to our souls. Please be seated. So first of all, a racial reformation requires reminding. And what is the reminder that we need? The reminder that we need is that each and every human being is made in the image and likeness of God. Now, I know we've heard that before, but what I want to focus on is reminding us not just of what it means, but what it implicates us to do, how it applies to life today. So let's break it down a little bit. What does it mean to be made in God's image and likeness? In what ways is humankind similar to and different from the creator? Well, number one, there are ways that we are like God and there are ways that we are unlike God. So some ways that we are like God, the ability to reason, to think. We are like God in the ability, by his permission, to exercise dominion 
over the earth and over created things. That's why it says in verse 26, so that they may rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky, over the livestock and all the wild animals and over all the creatures that move along the ground. Like God, we are empowered to exercise dominion. We also have emotions. Describes the Lord as getting angry. The Lord being jealous for his people. The Lord being joyful. And we too feel emotions. And we are like God in that we make moral decisions between right and wrong. Animals can't do that. Plants can't do that. We, the crown of God's creation, can do that. Being made in God's image and likeness. Now, don't get it twisted. We are like God, but we're not God. So there are things, there are ways that we are unlike God. How are we unlike God? Well, we're not omniscient. We don't know all. We don't see all. We are not all-powerful. We like to act like we are, like we are in control of everything, but you know you're not. We are not all-powerful. We are not thrice holy like God. Holy, holy, holy. And you know in the Bible when you repeat it three times, it's perfection, it's completeness. God is completely holy. That's not us. And we're not like God because we need saving and God doesn't. God is the one who saves, but we can't do that ourselves. So there are ways that that, that, that we are like God and unlike God, but the reality of the doctrine of the image of God is that that we can't chop it up in neat little slices like that. To be made in the image and likeness of God is too complex. It's, It's too robust to be systematized so neatly into these categories. I like the way one theologian, Herman Bovink, put it. He wrote, this image extends to the whole person, while all creatures display vestiges of God. Only a human being is the image of God and is such totally in soul and body, in all faculties and powers, in all conditions and relations. So everything about us that is human speaks to what it means to be made in the image and likeness of God. A racial reformation needs a reminder of this truth. But what does it mean then if we are all made in the image and likeness of God? How then should we act? Biblical teachings on the image of God guide us in how to think about race and racism. If each of us is made in God's likeness, then any presumption of superiority based on skin color, culture, or ethnicity denies this truth. J. Daniel Hayes in his book, From Every People and Nation, says, what is racism? Racism or the presupposition that one's own race is superior or better than another is a denial that all people have been made in the image of God. Racism is a spiritual issue. Racism is a theological issue. Racism refutes the idea of the doctrine of image of God that is right there in the very first book of Genesis, very first chapter. The doctrine of the image of God shows us that our duty is to exalt God and not ourselves over one another. And here's the thing, all people are equally image bearers. 
There are no qualifications on image bearing. God doesn't restrict God's image to people who are black or white or Latin American or Asian or Native American. God doesn't restrict the image and likeness of God only to people who are rich. He doesn't restrict it only to the able-bodied, those with PhDs and those with GEDs, all made in the image and likeness of God. And that image extends to every single human being. That goes for non-Christians. That goes for homosexuals. That goes for children in the womb and out of the womb. That goes for documented and undocumented. That goes for incarcerated. That goes for free. It is the doctrine of the image of God that tells us how to treat people who are different. And guess what? The image of God extends to people even who aren't Christian. She tells you how to treat people. We are all made in the image and likeness of God, and all means all. We need a reminder in this racial reformation. Now, to put a finer point on it, in what is now the United States of America, the image of God in people of African descent has been systematically defaced throughout centuries. Throughout all kinds of means and all kinds of ages, what, what, what the dominant culture has told people of African descent is that you are lesser. That, that, that somehow the image of God passed us over or that we got a smaller portion of it than did other people. This is the lie that a racial reformation has to refute. Here's the thing. We often think about the image of God in individualistic terms. We think me, myself, or this other person, they are made in the image of God. But we are made in the image of God not only individually, but also collectively. Amen. Collectively. We are the image of God because no single people group, no single culture, no single language group could adequately reflect God's image and likeness. That's why he created so much of this diversity so that through the splendor of our differences, we could start to get a glimpse of the beauty of God together, collectively. I'm going to come back to this. But a racial reformation requires reminding ourselves of the doctrine of the image of God and what that means for race and the church. But a racial reformation also requires a reckoning. This is the hard part. So 2019 is the 400-year anniversary of when Europeans forcibly brought Africans to the shores of colonial Virginia in 1619, a date that is widely marked as the start of what became race-based chattel slavery in the United States. To commemorate the event, Nicole Hannah-Jones, an investigative reporter who writes for the New York Times Magazine, she launched a project called the 1619 Project. The aim of the 1619 Project is, quote, to reframe the country's history, understanding 1619 as our true founding, 
and placing the consequences of slavery and the contributions of black Americans at the very center of the story we tell ourselves about who we are. Need I remind you that black history is American history? But for decades and even centuries, black history has been forcibly removed from the stories we tell ourselves about the founding of the United States. Now, 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 don't let me go all historical on you. I could tell you about the Dunning School and about how they twisted Reconstruction. I could tell you about the birth of a nation and how they glorified the Ku Klux Klan as protecting the South and the virtue of, of white people and all of these things. History has been deliberately distorted. The 1619 Project is an endeavor to correct that history and help us come to terms with it. Sounds like a helpful project, right? Not everybody thought so. You go online and you can read some articles and you can look on social me media and people about lost it. When this writing came out, they about lost it. Why? Because it was dismantling the myth that America was God's chosen and holy nation. That America could do no wrong. That what we have in terms of material prosperity and military might was all because of the virtue of the founding fathers and the people who came after them. And what the 1619 Project is saying, no, this prosperity came on the backs of the enslaved. We need a reckoning. Now this affects the church too. As I'm looking and researching for this book, I was appalled at some of the things I learned. Did you know? that back in 1667, the Virginia Assembly, which was a group of white Anglican men, and note that in this time, if you wanted to be elected official, you had to be a member in good standing at a church. This group of men passed a law saying, it is enacted and declared by this grand assembly and the authority thereof, that the conferring of baptism doth not alter the condition of the person as to his bondage or freedom. In other words, you could get baptized just like we did today, and you would be spiritually free, but not physically free. What happened there was, was, was this. When they passed that law, you have the intersection of race, religion, and politics. And guess what? In 2019, you still cannot separate race, religion, and politics. So don't be afraid to go there. What also happened was this artificial bifurcation of the spiritual and the material. So, 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 so they said you could get baptized and God could have your soul, have your soul, but guess what? We have your body. And to this day, that separation continues when you hear things like, oh, don't, don't, don't talk about those, that political stuff. Just preach the gospel. They say you're replacing the gospel with, with, with the social gospel. Well, there is no gospel that does not have social implications. <laughs> If that's your argument, then I question whether it's the gospel you're truly preaching. Let me move on. You heard of a man named Jonathan Edwards? Maybe you have, maybe you haven't. In scholarly circles, he's often called America's greatest theologian. He wrote a sermon that he's famous for called Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. 
He was known for leading great revivals and religious conversions back in the 1700s when he lived as a minister in Northampton, Massachusetts. That's the typical information you hear about it. And when I went to seminary, that's what they told me. But what they didn't tell me was Edwards, America's greatest theologian, was also a slaveholder. One of the things that gets me about studying history is, is the specificity. So when we say slaveholder, okay, we have a category for that, but, but, but it affected me when I learned that by the age of 28, Edwards was a slaveholder, and the first person he bought was a teenage black woman named Venus. He didn't just enslave a person. He enslaved Venus, made in the image and likeness of God. He held other slaves as well, another named Joseph, another named Lee, and a young boy named Titus. What might get you is that Jonathan Edwards represented a relatively moderate view of slavery because he believed that Africans actually had souls and that you should preach the gospel to them. Some didn't believe that at all. There's a book entitled The Negro, A Man or Beast, where the author argues that black people, being the direct descendants of apes, do not have souls like white people. So Edwards was moderate. He accepted the spiritual equality of black and white people and he said that slaveholders should evangelize the enslaved, but he did not advocate for their physical freedom, America's greatest theologian. Now, back again on the subject of baptism. We're moving forward in history here. The nation's largest Protestant denomination is the Southern Baptist Convention. Many of you know the history of that denomination, so I will quickly recount it for you. In the year 1845, Baptists North and South split over the issue of slavery. But again, to put a finer point on it, it wasn't just slavery writ large. Here was the specific issue at hand. What Baptists in the South were arguing is that you could be a Baptist in good standing and be a missionary and hold slaves. So, 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 so get this in your mind and try to make sense of it if you can. They are commissioning missionaries to go probably to majority world countries where the people are black and brown. And they're saying, we can commission and give our full cooperation to these missionaries at the same time as they are enslaving the people who look exactly like the ones they want to evangelize. If you can make that make sense, let me know. So they did this legal maneuver in the church courts. They basically knew that their northern Baptists were sympathetic to abolition. And so what they did was they put this missionary who was also a slaveholder forth to be uh, ordained as a missionary as a test. The first time they did it, the northern Baptists, they knew what they were doing, but they essentially dodged the question. But the people in the south... The Baptists in the South did it again, and they made the, the question explicit, do you or do you not accept that a missionary can be a slaveholder, and they challenged the convention to take a stand. 
which they did. The home mission society responded with a clear rejection that any slaveholder could be in office. They said, quote, if, however, anyone should offer himself as a missionary having slaves and should insist on retaining them as his property, we could not appoint him. At that, the battle lines between Northern and Southern Baptists were drawn. In May 1845, almost 300 Baptist leaders representing nearly 400,000 members from the southern states, they gathered in Augusta, Georgia to form a new church association, one that was inclusive and positive towards slaveholders, and they called it the Southern Baptist Convention. We need to have a reckoning. And lastly, in the 20th century, Billy Graham is known as the face of American evangelicalism from the 1950s, basically all the way to his death last year at the age of 99. He is purported to have spoken in person uh, to more people than any other per person in the history of the planet. Literally millions at his crusades over the course of decades. After he died, a lot of people were talking about Billy Graham's legacy. One of the things that came up is that, 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 that he was essentially a civil rights activist. Uh, he may not have been marching in the streets, but, but he was pro-black, pro-civil rights, and did a lot for black people in America. Well, he, look, history's complicated. So, so let's complicate the past a little bit. Now, Billy Graham is known for acts of racial reconciliation. For instance, in 1953, it is said that he personally took down the ropes dividing white and black at one of his crusades. Now, mind you, that's the year before Brown v. Board. Then after Brown v. Board in 1957, he invited Martin Luther King Jr. to open one of his crusades with prayer, which King did. It is apocryphal. That means we're not sure. But Billy Graham himself claims that Martin Luther King Jr. invited him to call him Mike, which was a name reserved only for MLK's closest friends. Now, that is not verified, but that's something Graham said. What we do know for certain is that after some of the more confrontational tactics of the civil rights movement, once it really heated up in the 1960s, in the early 1960s, we do know that Graham reportedly told King to pump the brakes a little bit. He said, all of this, 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 this nonviolent confrontation, that's too much. We need to go slower. Yes, we need to work for change, but we need to do it in a way that's not going to bring people out with fire hoses and canines and all that. MLK called it creative tension, that you have to provoke a reaction peacefully, nonviolently, but to bring attention to injustice. And in the face of folks like Billy Graham, King wrote his letter from a Birmingham jail. Now, in it, he wrote about the white moderate. I'm going to call it the Christian moderate. Why? Because there were black moderates, too. We think of the civil rights movement as involving most of the black churches in the 1950s and 60s. Historians estimate only about 10% of churches got actively involved in the civil rights movement. Not every black church was part of it. 
So I think we can call it the Christian moderate. And he said in this letter, and if you haven't read it or haven't read it in a while, just Google it. They've got a PDF online. It is a magnificent piece of political philosophy. And he writes in the letter from a Birmingham jail, I must make two honest confessions to you, my Christian and Jewish brothers. First, I must confess that over the past few years, I have been gravely disappointed with the white moderate. I have almost reached the regrettable conclusion that the Negro's great stumbling block in his stride toward freedom is not the white citizens counselor or the Ku Klux Klanner, but the white moderate, who is more devoted to order than to justice, who prefers a negative peace, which is the absence of tension, to a positive peace, which is the presence of justice. Shallow understanding from people of goodwill is more frustrating than absolute misunderstanding from people of ill will. Lukewarm acceptance is much more bewildering than outright rejection. These are the truths of history that we as a church have to confront. A racial reformation requires reckoning with a racist past. And lastly, a racial reformation requires reforming. The Marines have a, a, a phrase in Latin saying, semper fi, always faithful, ever faithful. The Protestant Reformation had a Latin phrase that said, semper reformanda, always reforming. The work of understanding God and scripture better and more clearly never ends. And if that was true 500 years ago, it's also true now. Semper reformanda. So let me outline to you what I think, practically speaking, a racial reformation would look like in terms of reforming the church. Number one, as the doctrine of salvation by faith alone was the central doctrine of the Protestant Reformation, I think the central doctrine of the 21st century racial reformation would be the image of God. Let that sink in for you. So, so, so in the 16th century, the revolution was all about saying, you don't earn your salvation. Salvation is a gift. And then everything else changed after that. When we look at the racist history of the church in this country, we have to put the doctrine of the image of God at any reformation. And if we have a proper understanding of the image of God, then that's going to change everything about how we do church. If we make that the core and central doctrine in an increasingly racially and ethnically diverse world, we need to understand the foundational biblical teaching about God creating all human beings in God's image and likeness. Sets up our views about how to treat people. It's about identity. Number two, a racial reformation would require a revolution in our theological and ecclesiastical education. In other words, we need theology written, taught, preached by black folks and other people of color. What happened in the Protestant Reformation was that it was a mainly European phenomenon, meaning most of the teaching, which is still good teaching in many ways, 
came from European, specifically educated men. A 21st century racial reformation is going to look different. It's going to include people from different tribes and tongues and nations leading the way in helping us understand what the Bible teaches and who God is. It's going to come from the margins. We're going to have to learn from more than old dead white men. And we can learn from them, but there is more. I don't know, we might, we might have to partner together, Doc, and start a new seminary, new Bible colleges, with diversity built into the fabric of the institution instead of trying to add it on after the fact. Number three, there's going to have to be an emphasis on the ethical application of biblical teaching. What do I mean? One of my mentors, Carl Ellis, calls this A-side, B-side theology. A-side refers to the cognitive and the epistemological, the intellectual. B-side refers to the ethical and intuitive. What does that look like? Okay, so the Protestant Reformation, they came up with all these books of systematic theology. They categorized and named everything. They had the, the technical aspects of the language, and that's helpful. But that's not the only way to understand biblical teaching. What black folks did in the midst of oppression was come up with ethical and intuitive applications of the Bible. So in a society where for hundreds of years black people were not permitted to learn how to read and write, that didn't stop them from understanding who God was and how God was working in the world. So where do you find the teachings of the black church and marginalized and oppressed people? It's in, it's in our song. It's in the Negro spirituals, it's in gospel music, it's in blues music, it's in our sermons. When you go back and you listen to the old saints preach, it's all there. But we don't categorize it as theology because it's not on the cognitive and epistemological side, it's on the ethical and intuitive side. The intuitive part means that an oppressed people know what it's like to be oppressed. Oppressed people know what is right and what is wrong and they can speak about it. And so a, a racial reformation in the 21st century is going to have that emphasis on A side, B side theology and not one to the exclusion of the other. Number four. A racial reformation in the 21st century is going to be multi-ethnic. We touched on this a moment ago with the teaching, but, 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 but it's got to be incarnational, in meaning in the flesh. It's got to be relational. That's why churches like Strong Tower are so important as a public, visible demonstration of the unity of God's people across human-made divisions of race and ethnicity. Not every church can be multi-ethnic or multi-racial, but we need more. We absolutely need more to be that living demonstration of what a multi-ethnic church looks like as a foretaste of heaven in the book of Revelation, in Revelation 5, 9, and Revelation 7, 9, when God pulls back the curtain of eternity and says, guess what? It's going to be all kind of people in my heavenly congregation. Amen. You know that's right. 
You're going to be eating challah and jerk chicken. You're going to be eating uh, Swedish meatballs and fried chicken. You know, anything that you can think of. I think of, it talks about heaven as a heavenly banquet. I don't think it's all just going to be from one place. I think we're going to have a, a, a potluck that is, is global. And I can't wait. And we're going to eat and be satisfied and not have to worry about working out after. It's going to be heaven. And finally, in a, in a 21st century racial reformation, the last shall be first. A racial reformation will not only transform racial relationships, it will reform gender and class relationships too. So that women who have to endure patriarchy, misogyny, misogynoir will be dignified as full image bearers of God. That they can come to churches and feel safe physically, spiritually, and emotionally. A racial reformation will have residual effects on class. So that we are not just middle class or rich churches, but we are churches comprised of people from every income level. And, and as the Bible says, there shall be no poor among you. That when one feels a need in the body, we all feel it. And that if somebody is struggling with, with, with tuition loans or, or home mortgages or medical debts, we would not struggle alone, but the household of God would help us even with our financial burdens. Did you know that the civil rights movement sparked a minority rights revolution? So, so civil rights for black people led to women's rights, led to rights for Latinos and Latinas, led to, led to laborers' rights. When you fight for the rights of one group of people, you fight for the rights of all. Now, I have to make a confession as I close. I said that a racial reformation would require three things. We talked about a, a reminding of the doctrine of the image of God. We talked about a, a reckoning with the church's racial history and present. And we talked about a reforming. But there's one more thing a racial revolution requires. A racial revolution requires a redeemer. Ephesians 2, 14 to 16, for he himself, Christ, is our peace who has made the two groups one and has destroyed the barrier, the dividing wall of hostility. Why? How? By setting aside in his flesh the law with its commands and regulations. His purpose was to create in himself one new humanity out of the two, thus making peace and in one body to reconcile both of them, Jew and Gentile, to God through the cross by which he put to death their hostility. A racial reformation requires a redeemer because it brings together people from different tribes and tongues and races and ethnicities, but that can only happen when Christ himself is our peace. Christ has destroyed the barrier. Christ has bashed down the dividing wall of hostility. In Christ, our redeemer, we are a new humanity. So those of us who are far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. In Christ alone, we become one body. In Christ alone, we become a reconciled people. And now, brothers and sisters, the good news is that reconciliation is already ours. We already have peace between one another because we have peace with God. And so we don't have to doubt this morning. We don't have to despair. We don't have to look at the state of the nation and say there's no hope. It'll never happen. 
We don't have to wonder or worry whether we will ever be one people. We already are one people, the people of God. So there's good news today that you can work, but you can work with confidence. You can strive for justice, but you know that you will ultimately prevail. You can come together for another 24 years at Strong Tower to build a multi-ethnic, multi-racial, multi-class congregation. And you can do this all because reconciliation is not something we must achieve. It is something we receive. Amen and praise God. Thank you very much. Praise God. Jamar, thank you for coming to um, put gasoline on the fire that God has ignited in Strong Tower Bible Church for us to keep doing what he's called us to do. Amen. I'm going to ask my friend Anthony Hendricks to come up and close us in prayer. Uh, Anthony Hendricks, uh, he and I played Little League football together back in 1979, 80, something like that, <laughs> in Baltimore, Maryland. Uh, he came here and served as our fellowship pastor for several years. Uh, many of you know him and love him. Uh, is Carla with you? Is Carla here? Okay. I see the kids here. And so, uh, so glad to have you this morning. And uh, I'm going to ask my deacons to take Brother Jamar out, uh, and he'll come down briefly to the fellowship hall. Uh, he's got to get on the road to head back home. But uh, if you guys could escort him out, and he'll come down and greet you on his way out. All right, all right. Wow. And uh, I've got these green cards. If there's somebody who wants to know Jesus, come talk to me. You want to join this church? Come talk to me. You want to talk about baptism? Come talk to me. All right, Pastor Anthony, come on, my brother. Amen. Let's join hands as a symbol of the unity that we've been talking about this morning. as we go to God. Let's pray. Father, today we are grateful for this message, Lord God. We're grateful, Lord God, that because of your love for us, you put in place this ministry of reconciliation that you not only put in place, God, but that you yourself came and made possible by the death of your son on the cross. So this morning, Lord, we want to say thank you and we love you, Dad, for the plan that you put in place before the foundations of this world. And God, this morning, I'm thankful for Strong Tower Bible Church and the ministry that you've been doing in and around Middle Tennessee for the last 24 years. God, thank you for your faithfulness in this ministry. And Father, I pray that 24 more years is in the future of this church as you begin to continue to touch people's lives with this ministry of reconciliation. And so, Father, as we leave this place today, God, I pray that we would not have just heard a good message, Lord, but, God, that this message might permeate our very being, that we might go out and be the ministers of reconciliation that you've called us to be in the various spheres of influence that you will take us. 
So, God, I'm thankful that in your word it says that when it goes forth, it will accomplish everything that you desire for it, accomplish, for it to accomplish in the people that you want it to be accomplished through. So, God, touch every person in this building. Might we be the ministers of reconciliation that you've called us to be. And, Father, when it's all said and done, we'll give you glory. We'll praise your name, Dad. We love you, and we pray all of this in the mighty and the matchless name of Jesus Christ, our great Redeemer, and all of God's people said, amen and amen.